This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. It is currently June of 2023, and people might remember that January 2026, the current estate tax, really transfer tax exemptions, are going down by half. We don't really know what they're going to be on January 1st, but that has got a lot of planners thinking things like needing that we need to do more advanced planning before that day comes, and for a host of whole, a whole uh, host of other reasons, of course, uh, you need to do advanced planning. So to talk about that and everything else under the sun, I'm sure, is Darren Case. Darren, thanks for coming back. Oh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. Always a pleasure, Darren, with you. Always a pleasure. <laughs> Never a dull moment. I appreciate it. We um we were talking before we we started here kind of about the crunch at the end of 2019, where there was some some indications that they were going to substantially change the estate tax rules. They ended up not doing that. Now we've got this this time ticking time bomb happening at the end of 2025. Are you seeing people get energized to do planning now for that event, or is it just people are doing planning because they need to do planning no matter what? Uh it's a mix of both. It's obviously not as crazy it was in 2019 and 2020, where people were just nonstop emails, nonstop phone calls, people literally showing up at the, the front desk of our office trying to do slats and digits. Um, but it, it's cooled off a little bit. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, with the initial wave in 2019, 2020, a lot of clients got the planning done. But there's a lot of clients that they got cold feet. And I guess no harm, no foul, except for all of their assets have probably been appreciating all this time. Right. But in addition to that, um, some clients just they, they wanted to wait. And now we're kind of reapproaching it. Obviously, there's new clients coming in the door that some of them realize that they should get started sooner rather than later, which I greatly appreciate. But honestly, with, with every new high net worth client or the old high net worth clients as well, kind of touching base with them saying, you know what, let's just schedule a 30 minute Zoom call or phone call and just kind of discuss what's going to happen. January 1st, 2026. And even if you do nothing, <laughs> at least nothing right now, you're going to promise me that you're not going to wait until January, sorry, December of 2025 to give me a phone call to do these transactions. Right. So, but uh, yeah, so still some advanced estate planning, slats and idgits again are the big ones coming in the door, but it's not as crazy as it was, it was in 2019, 2020, at least not yet. Yeah, similar for us. And I think the the planning, I don't know, the planning is always there. Like there's always stuff that we're doing. It's just then you have these moments of time where things start to get super condensed and it just really stacks up on each other like, like the... Uh, well, 2012 was that way. That was sort of the first crunch of my career that was pretty bad. And then 2020, uh, 2019 was pretty bad. And I think what I've what I've uh, decided somewhat similar to what you were just describing is that I ha I really need to be meeting with most of those clients with some regularity, at least annually. 
because number one, things are things have just been changing constantly. I mean, this with the debt ceiling, uh, what I heard, at least anecdotally, is that they were contemplating that the Democrats were offering up keeping the estate tax exemptions where they are now. But that was one thing that they kind of threw on the table in the negotiating process. So this issue is constantly out there and it's a little political football. So it, it's constantly in the news and it's constantly on the lips of people in in the halls of Congress. So that the changes just sort of necessitate constantly being in contact with people. And then the other thing that is certainly true for my clients, and that I'm assuming it's similar for you, is it's not like you can just flip a switch. A lot of the planning is it's too complicated to just flip a switch and make it happen. There's a lot of work that goes into preparing to do this, the transfer within the broader structure of what they own. That's fascinating about the the debt ceiling negotiations, because, you know, for the, the listeners uh, to the podcast, they know the estate tax exemption amount, it, it changes from time to time. Mm-hmm. But we kind of saw this already when Obama was president. When the Bush tax cuts sunset in 2008, ultimately he stuck a Band-Aid on the Bush tax cuts for a few years and then used it as a bargaining chip saying, hey, Republicans, if you want this exemption, I'll do you one better. I'll raise it and adjust it for inflation if you give me this, this, and this. And obviously Biden was Obama's VP. And so it seems like there's similar tactics going on, but you know, for our you know clients, you know, it's not such a bad thing if, if they make that bill permanent. Although I'm getting asked a lot, and Brent, I'm sure you're getting asked a lot to to make predictions about what's going to happen with Trump's tax bill. Now, I speak locally and nationally like you do, and for some reason I keep getting asked to speak before major elections. And when I go back through my materials for prior elections, it's funny on how wrong my predictions are. (laughs) But so take this with a grain of salt. Honestly, my prediction is that I feel like Trump's tax bill will sunset. Yes, most tax bills do get extended. Historically, most all tax bills do get extended. But this one just feels different. Not getting political or hopefully don't offend anybody, but this is Trump's tax bill. He essentially arbitrarily doubled the estate tax exemption amount. It'll be difficult for congressmen, congresswomen, and senators to stick their neck out there and say, I need essentially a $13 million exemption. It's 12.92 now, but $13 million exemption instead of a $6.5 million exemption or whatever the numbers are. That's a very hard argument to make. Um, So I do think Trump's tax bill will sunset. If there's a silver lining to it, maybe Biden does the same thing that Obama did that I just described. He sticks a Band-Aid on Trump's tax bill, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, for a few years. Then they ultimately extend or make permanent Trump's tax bill. But they call that bill something else just to remove Trump's name from it. I could see that potentially happening, but we'll see. This podcast will probably be out there on the Internet for quite some time. But if I'm way wrong, you're going to delete this, right, Brent? Absolutely, of course. (laughs) It'll just be one. It'll be just one long bleep through that entire monologue, Darren. Don't worry. But the, the, it's interesting because I, I do have that conversation with clients and other professionals and they ask me what I think. And, and I don't I don't tell them as, as directly as that, that I think it, we're going to have it for the long run, run. But what I tell people is, well, it, it actually is a very narrow set of circumstances, potentially very narrow set of circumstances where things would substantially change or substantially stay the same. 
And that is you need to have one party that basically controls the entire federal government because otherwise it's going to be horse trading. There's no other way about it. They'll, they will not be able to do a tax bill, at least not a big tax bill, without a lot of horse trading if one party does not control the entire federal government. And yes, that does happen, but it's very infrequent that that happens. And even the, even, uh, you know, the last iteration of it, when the Democrats controlled everything, they really didn't have control because they didn't have 60 votes in the Senate which is in essence what you need, or apparently you need it at minimum like 53 votes in the Senate. So you can have a couple of people not not toe the party line and you can still get things done through the Senate. So that that sort of very narrow set of circumstances where one part or the other controls the entire federal government, it doesn't happen that often. And the prospects of it happening in, say, 2024 after the next election, I don't know that it's really that high. I think it's a lot higher that we kind of have the status quo going forward for a bit where you have a, a division in the government at the federal level than we have one party rule. And so I, I wouldn't hang my hat on one party the other coming to the rescue. Yeah, I'm still surprised that uh, Biden's tax proposal did not get passed. I mean, with all the power that they had, but yes, Senator Cinema here in Arizona and Senator Manchin out in West Virginia ultimately blocked that legislation. <laughs> There's a lot of us in this area, our jaws just dropped. They're like, okay, I guess we have more time. <laughs> Yeah. Fortunately, none of the clients that moved forward with uh, the advanced estate planning, gifting assets to intentionally defective grantor trusts or spousal lifetime access trust. I haven't had a client regret it yet. And I think, you know, one last comment on this is because, you know, way back when I think the first time you had me on a podcast, there was a phrase that you said that I said on the podcast I was going to steal going forward. Do you remember what that phrase was? <laughs> I don't remember. Uh -uh. Uh, OK, it's the best time to do advanced estate planning is today. The next best time is tomorrow and the next best time after that's the day after. The reason why is the appreciation of that wealth as soon as you can get it out of your estate the better. Yeah. And so I've been saying that all that time since I've been on the podcast. So thank you, Brent, because it really resonates with clients and none of them have regretted gifting away millions of dollars and using their exemption. Up. No. And I, I've been it, it, recently, I'd say within the last year or so, I've been more mindful when I meet with clients and I talk to them about doing large gifts to try to illustrate to them the value of doing the gifts. And so I'll run very simple projections and you can run them in number cruncher or tiger, tiger tables and or you can just run it in like an Excel sheet like an idiot like me. And so it's not very fancy, but, you know, I can run you know, sort of straight line appreciation and then calculate what the estate tax would be on that appreciation after 10, 15, 20 years. And the numbers are easily in the millions by making the gifts. I mean, it's like a, it's almost a no brainer. And the other thing that I've been telling people when they, when they could have an estate tax issue is, is I've been trying to help them understand what it means to have to pay the estate tax. So this is what I've been telling them. You, if you like this, you can steal it. If you don't yeah, like let me it, don't a, tell let me. Let me get a pen and but paper. I'm going to steal some more material this is, from you. This is what I've been telling them. I say, look, when you look at the, the internal revenue code in the sections where they talk about deductions for giving money to charity. The first charity on the list is the government. The government thinks that they are a charity. That's what they think. So when you write when you write that check, you're giving it to what in the eyes of the government is a charity. But the rules give you a choice. You either give the money to that charity or you pick a legitimate charity and you give it to <laughs> that charity, like a real charity. 
that needs the money and they can't print money. So that's basically your choice. When you're when you are going to have to pay a state tax, that's it. If you choose to not give money, if you choose to not be charitably inclined, and of course there's big air quotes around charitably inclined because you and I both know we can put all sorts of wrappers around that charitable money where it's it's controlled by the family. It's the family money. <laughs> yes, it's going to be yes, it's going to be paid out to charities, but they're going to milk that thing for all sorts of social cachet, etc. So like there's a lot of value in it. But that's basically the choice. You're going to give it to one charity, which is the federal government, which is the richest government in the history of the planet, or some other charity and charities that you choose and maybe charities that you'll choose in the future because it's your private foundation or donor advised fund. And then I, so once I get people to wrap their minds around that, I say, OK, then the trick is we're going to try to make sure. And usually they say like, yeah, we don't want to give the federal government the money. Like, great. Like, All right. Now our job is to try to make sure we give charity the smallest amount of money possible. <laughs> and that means we're going to try to squeeze down the value of what you own as much as possible and do gifts to slats and idgits like you're describing and then do transactions with those trusts and just really try to squeeze everything down. And that's the game. That's it. There is no other game. That, that's a, well, I love it because, yeah, I never looked at the internal revenue code that way, but you're right. They do list the government first. This it's weird. It's really a weird. organization. But uh, so I have um, two associates at the the firm and um, I always quiz them and I have two summer clerks. It's a full house here at Tiffany and Bosco, but yeah. I'll give them a shout out. Uh, so Riley they're just Harder. sitting in the hallways, just <laughs> set up like chairs and boxes well, in the hallways. I, I think both of them are here because they're new associates and they're working long hours, but uh, we appreciate Perfect. it, Riley and Claudia. But uh, Riley Arder, graduate from uh, U of A's law school. She's that good and ambitious about estate planning that a sun devil was willing to hire a wildcat. Wow. So, wow. And then Claudia Grajeda, ultimately at our firm, um, graduate undergrad UCLA. Um, she's been here for a few years. And then our two summer associates, one is Catherine Cowdery, who's over at Georgetown. Go Hoyas, Hoya Saxa, and then Grace Coaster at Arizona State. But anyway, I'm getting off track here. But I always quiz them. I'm like, do you know what section one of the Internal Revenue Code is? Just because the people that wrote the Internal Revenue Code, it's fascinating. You just mentioned the government is considered a charity, but the charity number one. But section one in the Internal Revenue Code is essentially married filing jointly. The Internal Revenue Code assumes that we're all getting married. And this is the first place you start in the Internal Revenue Code. But anyway, got off topic there, but I uh, gave some shout outs and uh, a little quiz trivia knowledge. Yeah, but it, it is interesting because you can sometimes when you read the code, you get an idea of the policy that they are suggesting by the mm -hmm. way that they write the code. And so, of course, when you at least for me, when I read Section 170 and Section 2055 and Section 2522 and different sections of the code that talk about charitable contributions. And I see every single one of them. Number one on the list is the government as the charity. <laughs> it kind of makes me scratch my head like, well, that's weird. Who does that? I don't know that I've ever seen somebody write a check and send it into the IRS and say, hey, I don't know I overpaid, but you guys can just have it. I, I don't need this. I'll just take my deduction if that's fine with you. I've never seen it, but it's there in the code. You know? <laughs> You know what? Uh, hopefully in one of our careers, we're going to see somebody Once. that actually structures it as a charitable gift to the, you know what? Good for them if they do it that way. That'd be a kind of a Absolutely. humorous way of saying, here's your estate tax collections, but I'm making it a charitable donation. <laughs> so I've been, uh, you know, you mentioned slats and idgits, 
And, uh, you know, we, we talked about those in a past episode, a little shout out here for people to go listen to your past episodes. But I think sometimes people forget that once you set them up, then you kind of have to nurture and feed them. And well, if you're really being strategic, you gotta, you should nurture and feed them. So I've been thinking a lot about how to do transactions with those trusts once we create them. And so, you know, the one I think you and I probably know and love would be you sell assets, sell the assets in, you take back a promissory note, we get beautiful appraisals, of course. We usually make the client file a gift tax return to report a non-gift transaction. We attach all the documents. We want to get the statute of limitations running, hopefully. And then and then the hope is you pay off the note. And now you've got cash and you don't have that asset anymore. Well, are there any other types of transactions that you do then try to, to pump up those trusts, which is really where you want all the, the value to be? Sure. I mean, there are some. I think you covered the main ones that, you know, the case family ultimately does here at Tiffany and Bosco. But there's other aspect, and I know you're very familiar with this, is that you, you get these clients in and they usually have the starter estate plan. So it's like, all right, we need to get your starter estate plan into a fancy estate plan, your revocable living trust, your wills, power of attorney. Let's improve them. Your rev trust is probably becoming a dynasty trust of some sort, yada, yada, yada. And then you get to the advanced estate planning. <laughs> Usually after I do the basic estate plan, I give clients a break. I'm like, hey, dealing with me, I know I'm exciting to myself, but to most people that don't love tax and estate planning as much as I do, I'm going to give you a break. So we wait a few months, then we do the advanced estate planning. It usually works out well because they're using that knowledge they have from the basic estate plan and now applying it to the advanced estate plan. And you've sprinkled in a few seeds about advanced estate planning previously. But once you ultimately gift those large numbers, the 12.92 million for each spouse, obviously using the leverage, the discounting, those types of things, clients can get burnt out. <laughs> yeah. They're like, you know, I can only do so much, but I'm like, well, hey, like we can still do these things. Like we can sell additional assets to the slot and so forth. But I mean, you're right. Those are the ones that we ultimately do. But it's hard to get a lot of clients to continue. They just feel like, you know what, I've done enough. <laughs> I have to make that air quote charitable donation to the uh, government at, you know, upon my death, you know, i.e. paying a state tax, they're willing to do so. But yeah, to answer your question directly, it's mainly sales, sales to intentionally defective grantor trusts or sale to a slat, which is also an intentionally defective grantor. That's the most typical in my book. I don't get too cute with it. I know there's other transactions that can be done. Yeah. And I don't I don't I don't know that you have to get incredibly cute with it to begin with, which is kind of nice because I mean certainly because interest rates have been so low that doing a sale on a on a note, if you don't have the cash sitting around to just to pay for it, I mean it's it, it's been really good. And now interest rates, you know, let's call it four percent. Um, it's still good, but it's maybe not as good as it used to be. And so I, I'm still inclined to try to do it. I still kind of think that even at 4%, you're probably going to come out better in the end when you really drag things out over a long period of time. And so I'd be willing to take a 4% interest payment in order to shift appreciable assets. But it starts to make you think things like, well, do we really want to do it? Is it really going to be economically effective? Is the cash flow going to work? Are we going to be able to pay for it? Different challenges, I think, than even two years ago. That, yeah. You know, two years ago, the transactions were easier. Now they're not as easy just because the economics aren't as easy. 
Yeah, you mentioned interest rates, and I think the last time I was on the podcast, I talked about my unhealthy obsession with grass. <laughs> and we looked up, uh, it should have been the 75-20 rate, but we yeah. looked up AFRs and 75-20 rates, and it was just microscopic. Now, 4% is not bad. Like, we could probably look up the 75-20 rate where it's at. It might be around 5 now, but it's funny how spoiled we got and clients got when the interest rates were like 0.34 or 1.2. One, yeah. <laughs> now they're complaining that it's four. I'm like, four is still great. If you take a look at what interest rates were in the 1980s, <laughs> when they're double digits and all over the place, I'm like, 4% still, still a deal. But I get it. I mean, some of these transactions, the, the leverage ultimately was not where it, it, it once was. For GRATs and charitable transactions, CLATs, which we're probably, I don't know if we're talking about those today. Um, I ran the calculations on a CLAT recently that I was ultimately working on. Um, and I'm like, this really, you're not really getting much bang for your buck here. Yeah, there's a charitable income tax deduction, but the transition of wealth to the next generation, it wasn't too great because the interest yeah. rates are going up. So. You, yeah, you have to be able to, you have to be able to tier those, those clap payments. Otherwise you get, you get hammered up front and it just doesn't quite pencil out. I've, I've still been doing some grats, even with the higher interest rates. Uh, we just rolled over a grat for a client that had uh, Apple stock. And the, the grat that we'd rolled out of, I mean, they did excellently. Apple killed it. So, you know, thank you to the people in um, in the Bay Area for running a tight ship over there because they, <laughs> they made that client's family very happy. And so we just rolled it over. And, you know, 4% on a stock like Apple, it's doable. It can oh, happen. Sure. And so you, you still get good leveraging even at 4%. Let's, I think it's like 4.2 this this month for the the 75-20 rate. So you know even at 4.2%, you still get pretty good re- leveraging on a grat. If you have the liquid assets to use for it, you might as well just take a punt if sure. you're inclined. And so we're doing stuff like that. I've been looking at, I looked at Cuperts. I haven't done any Cuperts. I know there was some talk about, well, maybe Cuperts are coming back. I'm not quite convinced about that. Um, we've done some charitable remainder trust probably have talked more about cruts with people in the last year than i did the previous five years um because they're a little more compelling now although the numbers are usually it's not like uh it's not so much different that it makes all the difference in the world but people seem to be interested in those we're talking about clats we've been we've been considering and then implementing in some instances clats that are sort of our our charitable floor in this whole scheme of not paying the government to the or sorry not paying the the money to the government but paying it to a charity and then slipping in a testamentary clat that will be the charitable recipient of course you do that you don't know what the interest rates are going to be when you implement it so the interest rates could be 10% and then everything's going to go to charity but of course the interest rates could also be 1% and then you're going to win but the whole mm-hmm. point is to just not pay the estate tax so we're doing, you know, doing stuff like that. We're still seeing a lot of um, kind of family business structuring and what you alluded to, which is kind of cleanup work. There's a lot of legacy um, estate planning documents out there, even stuff that's 10 years old. It's not that old, but it just has to be cleaned up. The laws have changed so much. People's situations change so much. There's just so much of that cleanup work that just that alone would keep us busy. And then you add in all the other stuff on top of it. Yeah. Uh, You reach a certain level in your career where, you know, 
advisors, referral sources, they find out that you can do cleanup work and you can do a good job. <laughs> so they, they always show up to your office with these disasters and they're like, Brent, Darren, clean these up. You're like, okay. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. There's a lot of that. But uh, anyway, you mentioned Cupert. So I got to yeah. mention like just I smirked when you said it because anytime somebody mentioned Cupert's, it takes me back to my days at Georgetown's LLM program. And for those who don't know, that's how I know Brent. We were both in the Georgetown LLM and tax program because three years of law school was not enough for us. We went back to law school for an additional law degree in tax. So I like to describe it as it's a PhD in nerdiness, essentially. Basically. But anyway, yeah. At Georgetown, they, they, they taught me about qualified personal residence trust, Cupert. And I was just so gung ho about these transactions. I'm like, this is awesome. Everybody needs a Cupert. And so when I started practicing, I'm like, I'm going to have Cuperts for everybody. And then I sat down with my dad and he's like, yeah, Cuperts, uh, they're, they're pretty stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they can be effective, but there's so many disaster things that could happen. It's like, you know, the parents put the home family home in a Cupert. The Cupert term expires and now their kids own the home and evict their parents from the home and those types of things. I'm like, yeah. Oh, I never thought about that. It's like, well, yeah, you know, when you practice law long enough, you'll figure these things out. But uh, I, I, I would I'm cheering for Cupert's to come back. Maybe they'll make sense again. But uh, I humorously had a client today. I He, he had a Cupid for many, many years ago. And I said, well, how did it go? And he's like, it worked great. I'm like, when did you do it? He's like, the 1980s. I'm like, yeah. oh, okay, that, that would have made sense to do a Cupert. Yeah, that, I haven't done a Cupert in a very long time. I've only... <laughs> really dealt with Cuperts that people created before I was practicing law. And yeah, they get a little tricky there. Well, the other thing is, you know, they have all sorts of rules about the ownership of the property and and gift tax on basically the payment of the expenses and all sorts of stuff that just makes them a little bit hard to manage. I am worried when uh, Natalie Choate finally like hangs it up because Natalie Choate, obviously a very prominent attorney, but like she is the Queen of Cuperts, obviously, she's probably the top professional in retirement accounts, Secure Act mm -hmm. related transactions for estate planning. But her Cupert manual, I'm like, well, who's going to take that Cupert manual up when she retires? <laughs> and so I'm like, maybe Cuperts will just disappear because she was the only person that knew it, you know, how to, you know, do them correctly. And right. obviously joking, but that uh, it could be true. It could be that she retires, the book goes out of, uh, out of print, and then Cuperts are wiped off the face of the planet. I've, I've been thinking a lot about a, a transaction that's it's kind of similar to a Cupert because uh, it uses a life estate called a remainder purchase marital trust as a sort of substitute for doing a sale to an intentionally defective trust. And basically the idea is that you put assets into a marital trust and then you immediately sell off the remainder interest to the IDGIT and the IDGIT pays you the, the grantor of the trust the spouse for the remainder interest. Well, the remainder interest is discounted for the value of the life estate. And some of the discounts, because of the way that the interest rates have gone up, the discounts have gotten better because the the income interest is is valued higher as the, as the interest rate goes up. And I because I was running into clients that were just sitting on a lot of liquidity and I'm not always I'm not always first to pull the trigger on dump all the liquid assets into an FLP and then gift away FLP interest. I get 
I, I think it can work in the right circumstances, but I get a little nervous about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it got me thinking about doing remainder purchase marital trusts as a way to gift away liquid assets, even for people who are sitting on tons of cash. And every now and then I run into those and get a discount on it because you basically buy the liquid asset for pennies on the dollar to get it into the remainder trust. And then when when the spouse who's the beneficiary of the trust dies, 100% of the assets in the trust go to the remainder trust, not just the piece that they bought. So or the the idiot, sorry, that bought the remainder. So it got me thinking a lot about like those sorts of clients and those sorts of situations. I think you could do it with FLPs too and really double up the leveraging. But um, it, anyways, it's it's been weird. I think the last year just I, ha- I wasn't really thinking about those transactions, but for the fact that interest rates were going up and I was thinking, well, what is, where does the, when interest rates go up, what, what levers get pulled, you know, mm-hmm. what of the things out there are affected by the interest rates? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, those transactions can be wonderful. Um, it, it takes the right type of client, as you know, the right yep. type of intellect and willingness to ultimately roll up their sleeves where, you know, for a lot of clients, for me, and I'm sure for you as well, when you go down that path and you see deer in the headlights, look, you're like, all right, maybe FLPs and, you know, remainder trust, those types of things. Maybe we'll just do a straight up cash gift or marketable securities and yeah. take advantage of the appreciation. Um, and I've done plenty of those. I've done mm-hmm. plenty of those. And I don't yeah. think there, and I actually don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, every now and then I'll get questions from other advisors <laughs> who did a big gift of like cash or just marketable securities. I'm like, well, did you guys think about doing an FLP? I'm like, yeah, we did. But it's, you got to pay me to set it up. It's not going to be cheap because uh, it's going to have all sorts of bells and whistles on it because I'm a nervous Nelly. When I read cases like Strangey and Powell and Cahill, and I, I, I'm going to layer in a bunch of stuff in there. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to have to track it. They're going to keep have to keep good books and records and mind their P's and Q's. And we just decided not to do it. And I don't. I think that's fine. You know what I mean? Like if a client isn't willing to add in layers of administrative hassle plus expense, that doesn't mean that there's no good planning to be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 2019, 2020. Um, I forgot when it was, but I was having a conversation with Allison Califano over at Platner Schneidman, excellent estate planning attorney over there, tax attorney. I think she's way underrated. Um, You know, she was, you know, kind of just expressing her frustration on how complex all of her transactions were for slats and idgits. It was all FLPs, operating businesses and so forth. And she's like, Darren, you know, why you seem so relaxed this time of year? And it's like, well, all of my ga- gifts have been cash or marketable security. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she didn't say this directly, but pretty much I think I remember she's like, I hate you, Darren. <laughs> so, yeah, but it's easier. Yeah. <laughs> Keeping transactions uh, simple, it's all can be said, but it's fun. I mean, I'll, I'll describe myself as a nerd. Brent, you are one as two. You get really excited when you have the client that understands these things and they're not being overly aggressive. They're just taking advantage of the way the laws are and the case history is. And and you can do some of the fun things that, uh, you know, get us excited and usually nobody else. So yeah. I love those transactions. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes the the more complex transaction is it's not driven by nerdiness of the advisors. It's really driven by the outcome that the client is telling you they want. And it just turns out that the tool to get that result is one of these types of instruments, you know, be it a FLP or some other more complex trust structure or a grat, which themselves are, they're fairly complex. It's its somewhat simple on a very high level to explain it to a client, but to really get into the nuts and bolts, it gets very complex quickly because 
you've, they've got to understand, uh, you know, present value discounting and, and the way that the, the interests are valued and the trust and some of those things will make your head spin. So, you know, one, one client might say one thing. And so they, you know, we go down one path and another client might say another thing. We go down a different path. And we, mm-hmm. I was kind of like Allison at the, in uh, 2019, we had some transactions, super complicated, lots of different types of assets and, you know, tr- creating family limit partnership structures or, or updating old structures. And then, and so for those clients, of course, it was the kind of complex stuff. And then for other clients, who didn't want that and maybe they had a lot of liquidity, we didn't do it. We just did transactions like yours and they were a lot easier, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I slept a lot easier for them, but <laughs> yeah, we, we did a lot of that. And I, I and my guess is 2024, 2025 will be similar. Yeah, we're, we're really trying to, to ramp up for 2024, 2025. Um, <laughs> getting all the materials prepped. Obviously we have materials ready, but really uh, making the... You know, so what does it mean to be a trustee of a a slat or an idget? Kind of wrapping up those materials. It's like, yeah. no, the spouse that gifted money to your slat can't have access to it. It's, a, it's <laughs> like, yes, you can distribute assets out in a roundabout way, but no, they can't like go into that account in your slat and you know buy a cruise for themselves. It, it's but you know staffing the the proper way. Um, I think in 2019, 2020, I was probably a bit understaffed. Um, where you, you put a lot of stress on the paralegals and the legal assistants. Uh, hopefully, I don't make that that, that mistake again. <laughs> yeah, staffing is going to be a big issue. There was a there was in a little bit of a small tiff. Well, tiff is even probably too strong. Um, on Twitter, suggesting that maybe you should actually start doing the planning now. Um, and some people suggesting that that was a waste of time and just a way to drum up fees, which I think is harsh and untrue, <laughs> but uh, obviously it's a little self-interested in that position. But but the my, my comeback is exactly what you just said. I said, well, look, if everybody waits until 2025, I will not have time. <laughs> I will not have time. I, I know because I, I know the list of my clients and I know the people on that list who would need to do it. And it's way too many. Yeah. We'd never get them all done. And they're they're good clients. I mean, you don't mm-hmm. want to shortchange your clients that you've had a long time that like, you know, they should get to the front of the line on getting transactions done. Um, but yeah, you know, couple that with, um, you know, our area of practice and this is kind of taking a slight turn, um, is that there's still not many people that want to go into tax and estate planning. And this is something that that terrifies me where, you know, a lot of our competitors are in their 60s and 70s. And there's just if they retire, ultimately leave the practice, there's just not enough quality credentialed attorneys in the area that can do these transactions. And so they'll be beating down the doors of the people that can do that but then all the overage they're probably going to end up with attorneys that don't really know what they're doing and and i'm terrified of that so waiting is not a good thing (laughs) Um, no and i i've already seen it i mean i we were involved in transactions uh, a few years ago where i represented mom and dad and we were going to do the transaction a certain way and the kids hired separate counsel which was totally fine by me um, and the separate council was giving them advice about how they should want to receive gifts from mom and dad that 
in my opinion, was way off base and just <laughs> not smart at all. And in the end, you know, you got to kind of maintain family harmony. We kind of went along with what the kids wanted. Uh, mom, you know, <laughs> mom and dad weren't just going to beat them over the head. Uh, it was just their kids. These weren't like dysfunctional families. And, you know, we did the transaction, but they got advice from somebody who, you know, maybe just wasn't as, as thoughtful as they should have been about the way it, it would be structured wisely. <laughs> for that child yeah their advisor yeah. says just just give us the the kids the money outright you don't need trust what is gst tax planning or dynasty right. trust that's just complicated you know gobbledygook <laughs> exactly what well, well it'd be too complicated and what they'll, so they'll have to just go to the trustee like no no, no they're going to be the trustee i know but it has to be in the trust <laughs> I'm like well yeah but it's like your own bank account it doesn't really matter no 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 it's like, yeah, but if they get divorced, then their their spouse is going to have a claim on this. No, 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 no. They'll, they're not going to get divorced. No. Sorry if I'm laughing years. too hard. It's nice to hear that there's other practitioners out there that deal with those same issues that I do, where you're ultimately, you're, well, I'm ripping my hair out, so it's not a good thing at this age. But ultimately, I'm like, it's, it's the child is the trustee. They have complete control over their inheritance. The trust is a wonderful tool for asset protection and tax planning. And sometimes they just don't get it. And you're like, oh. Okay, here's an outright gift, which just ruined. It's just going to create estate tax issues for yourself and your own family in the future. Yeah, it's <laughs> estate tax issues or liability issues, all sorts of a whole host of issues we don't have to bore people with. But it's like it really hurts me. <laughs> like, I'm really hurt. I'm like, no, just listen to me. It will not be as burdensome as you're making it sound. I know this whole trust thing and it's got this big document and it sounds like a lot. But then like literally in the end, the only distinction between the personal account and the trust account in many respects is the name that appears at the top of the <laughs> bank account statement. That is it. But one way it's protected and the other way it's not protected. But they're like, that's well, it. Well, well well, do my checks have to have the name of the trust on there? <laughs> I get that complaint. I'm like, yeah, oh, it's terrible. That's, I know a, no one will cash that check. If it says trust, they won't even cash it. That's not true for all our listeners who don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know that sort of thing sort of hurts my heart, which I, it gets, I think it gets to the point of this is why to do these kinds of transactions and the transactions that we're still doing, you can't just snap a finger that you're dealing with human beings and human beings will throw you curveballs all day long. And, you know, every transaction is going to end up looking a little different. It takes time. You got to talk about it. You got to convince people. And none of that happens overnight. Yeah. Like long in-depth conversations about mm -hmm. the kids where they're at in life financial yep. responsibility <laughs> if ever yeah. questioned to clients is like do you like your kids spouses <laughs> got some interesting uh results uh you know when you ask those questions but oh, yeah, uh, yeah it, it is not a quick process and you know you get towards crunch time towards the end of the year and people are still calling you and, and granted it sounds like we're complaining it's a wonderful problem to have to be busy but as brent mentioned it's like to do the transaction correctly we're not just plugging names into a document there's so much customization not only in the documents but understanding the family and their wealth and not destroying multiple generations because we didn't have the conversations you can't really do that in, you know, a week or two, <laughs> as, no. as much as people think in December of 2025 or December of 2019, December of 2020. But anyway, 
Um, yeah. I'll get off I'll get off my soapbox now. But kind of coming back full circle though, um, you know, leading up to the potential sunset of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, I still see the two top transactions and the variation thereof are slats, spousal lifetime access trusts, and intentionally defective, uh intentionally defective trusts as well. I agree. Right, tort so, trusts. Yeah, completely agree. Especially because a lot of that's gonna be motivated motivated by using up the exemption that people have available to them before it runs out. It's going to be slats. It's going to be idiots. No question. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, people are hearing buzzwords like dynasty trust or GST trust. Doesn't matter. It's the same thing <laughs> we're saying. And what that is, it's the same thing. Oh. And it's 100% going to be the the main recipients of those gifting transactions mm-hmm. for sure. Now, I know there, there's some practitioners out there that are probably going to be listening to this podcast that are probably screaming at Brent and, and Darren saying, well, what about beat it? <laughs> oh, yeah. So, hmm. What about him, I'm Darren? St- what about him? <laughs> well, maybe I shouldn't get too opinionated here, but uh, I still think a beat it. The beneficiary's defective inheritor's trust or variations thereof is my favorite phrase to say. I still think those are too aggressive I am not comfortable in doing them. Unfortunately, I've had to unwind more of those, not to continue to name drop, but uh, anytime uh, Jonathan Morrison or I get a beat it transaction, we you know text each other saying, well, I'm going to be miserable for the next month or so unwinding an aggressive tax transaction that the IRS will be all over. But um, yeah, so for anybody out there listening, um, you don't want to get too aggressive with these transactions. Slats and idgits have great case history on them to a certain extent. Beat it's, I'm still looking for actual case history, not revenue rulings that were slanted or private, sorry, private letter rulings. <laughs> That right. we're slanted in a manner to try to justify the the use of beatits. So anyway, that was the PC version of that was a very good PC <laughs> my, version my of opinion. that discussion. <laughs> I'm I'm uh, let's just say I'm aligned with you on those transactions, and it was it was the internal policy of my old firm that if we got one, we would unwind it. That yep. that was the policy. That's what we were going to do, no matter what, or tell the client that they needed to unwind it and start over because we we just didn't believe in them enough. And I'm still of that opinion. I know there's reasonable minds disagree about that, and there are very prominent uh, practitioners nationally who will do those transactions and believe in them. So, um, but I, I'm with you. There's just not enough out there to make me think I'd be comfortable, given the fact that there are so many other options. Yeah. Yep. You know what I mean? Like you you like you mentioned with slats and idgits, they're so prevalent and there's so many of them and there is case law on them and they've been tested and you can with some degree of certainty, nothing is black and white and perfect in life, but with some degree of certainty, if you do it a particular way, you you have some comfort that it's gonna work and withstand scrutiny. And with the beat it's I just think there's too many elements of it that may not work. And there's no reason to guess. Like the price <laughs> of being wrong is really high. Well, if 30 years from now, beatits are have the similar case history as idgits and slats, you'll obviously see Brent and myself outside with, you know, an arrow that says beatits in this office, kind of wiggling it around. Saying, I will you know, change <laughs> my opinion. I will change my opinion in a heartbeat. If the Ninth Circuit comes out with a case that blesses beatits, I will change my opinion instantaneously. 
I, I don't see that happening. I don't see that <laughs> happening ever, to be quite honest. <laughs> no, I don't either. But but if it does happen, I just want to be <laughs> on the record to say I will change my opinion. Well, 30 years from now, I, I hope uh, we're both retired. But as you know, estate planning attorneys, we never retire. We just die in our offices while That's drafting right. idgits and slats and dynasty trusts. It's the honorable thing to do. <laughs> Well, I I uh, appreciate your time. I know you're you're very busy and a hard guy to pin down. So any any chance to chat, I'm I'm grateful for. If people are trying to reach you, what's the best way for them to do that, Darren? Sure. Um, honestly, if you just Google Darren Case attorney, it's it's gonna pull uh, my profile up. But Darren Case, Tiffany and Bosco. Um, so anybody like to reach out, just go to our website. You can find my email address and contact information. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll I'll as usual add all your contact info and in the show notes and things and it'll be on the website and it'll be on the apps and things so people can find you there if they can't find you through google which is unlikely but if they can't uh, it'll yeah. be there too and if they ever do you know contact me through a podcast just say you know brent nelson because that'll get you in the door because when people call and say i found you from the internet <laughs> that's not the you know, strongest argument yeah <laughs> You're like, do I want to take this call? Uh, usually those are you know, quite interesting, but every now and then they pan out. So. Well, thank you again, Darren. I appreciate it. Oh, sure. Well, I'd love to be on again. So this is always fun. Hey, listeners. Thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.